ICF, Senior Vice President of Special Projects and Initiatives. Thank you for joining us again today for a podcast in regards to COVID-19 uh, and the nation's response and recovery from this event uh, as it continues. Several weeks ago, we did a podcast that was based on the initial understanding of the federal funding that's available for state and local governments and individuals with regards to COVID-19 response and recovery, uh, including uh, HHS uh, funds from the ha uh, Department of Health and Human Services uh, and the various subcomponents of that organization, uh, the uh, housing and urban development uh, funding that is available through the community development block grant programs uh, and the latest uh, version of that, the uh, CBDG uh, CV funding. And then finally, the FEMA side of the equation where all 50 states have been declared uh, for COVID-19 under the public assistance program, especially for things like emergency protective measures, uh, equipment and those kind of services under the public assistance program. That funding podcast was certainly based on information that was available at the time much of which is still very much in play and accurate. But what we wanted to do was take on a part two. We're now uh, several weeks into the event, uh, almost uh, bordering on a couple of months since the initial declarations were made. Uh, our clients at the state and local level, and of course our federal friends, have all been working through the myriad of issues that come up with regards to the response, the protective measures, uh, the recovery operations from COVID-19 while we continue in many places to shelter in place, uh, still practice social distancing, uh, and deal with a number of issues surrounding the response and recovery that are going to get further complicated as we move into the summer months with potential hurricanes, tropical storms, other natural hazards that will continue to work uh, in conjunction with COVID-19 ongoing response and recovery and the potential for a second wave. Wanted to start it off uh, today with bringing back uh, our three experts on the federal funding that's available. Megan Traber, who leads our practice in the Department of Health and Human Services and specifically ASPR uh, and the work we do there and at CDC. Uh, who's a longtime emergency manager, public health official. Uh, also, Kelly Price. Kelly, who leads our housing and urban development work uh, for HUD itself and, the, and doing the training and programs uh, and support efforts that allow state and local governments to understand the uses of CBDG dollars and the HUD programs that are available to them. And then finally, uh, Marty Altman. Marty is a longtime public assistance and FEMA response and recovery expert uh, who handles many of our interactions with our state and local clients on how they receive, utilize, and understand the rules around federal funding for disaster relief, whether that comes from FEMA or other sources. Thank you, all three of you, for being here today. Appreciate it. And let's just jump right in. Megan, uh, from a health perspective, uh, we are now at May 27th. 
uh, and what is the latest on the condition uh, of the COVID response and what is HHS uh, thinking about in terms of where we stand right now and where we may go over the coming weeks. Sure. <clears throat> Thanks, Marco. So at, as of May 27th, uh, we have over 1.6 million cases and more than 97,000 deaths in the United States in just, as Marco mentioned, just a few short months from a virus that we didn't know about six months ago. We have all altered our lives, our businesses, and, and um, specifically from my perspective, the way that we conduct healthcare and even the way that we uh, do emergency management to try to contain this virus. Scientists across the world are working on treatments and a vaccine, but there's still no sure treatment. And we are many, many, many months, maybe years away from a vaccine that will be available to the entire population. Social distancing, disease mitigation, and preparedness for the next wave is now our new normal. So on also, as it is now May, on top of COVID-19, we are also entering a season of increased natural disasters, which will compound the COVID-19 situation. We've already had one, uh, one named Atlantic hurricane, and I, I think there's another one brewing. Um, we've had a series of earthquakes in Nevada over the past couple weekends and, and some other states. We've had severe flooding in Michigan, an unexpected winter storm in the Northeast, tornadoes in the Midwest, uh, we're coming into wildfire season. So we need to prepare now for the reality of concurrent disasters and understand the best options available to protect residents and effectively respond and recover. So that's really where um, the, the various federal, state, and local agencies are thinking. They're looking at um, this sort of transition out of the first wave of disease, although in all, in all reality, there are still many communities that have not experienced their peak yet. Um, we are not done with the first wave of this pandemic. Um, there might even be a second peak before we hit a full second wave. So we need to just be careful with the term, you know, recovery. This isn't your normal recovery where the event ends and you can start to rebuild and resume either normal or new normal operations. This is the kind of event that is ongoing, long acting, and um, and continuous. So there are shorter phases of recovery and it's, it's just a new normal. Megan, I, certainly uh, a lot of changes um, and, and lessons are being learned as we go here. Uh, as the funding that HHS has put in place from their, their perspective of the equation, um, especially around um, health resources, uh, Medicare coverage issues, uh, all of the laboratory work, all of the hospital yep. preparedness. What are the what are they um, doing now, and and how has that kind of evolved over the course of the last couple of months from our our original discussion? Sure. So since the last time we talked, there have been um, some clarifications and a couple of additional uh, cooperative agreements that have been issued from. Um, from HHS and, and a few new programs. So um, HHS through ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, and the CDC have several existing programs, the Hospital Preparedness Program and the Public Health Emergency Preparedness Program that are used uh, in preparedness uh, for the healthcare system and the public health system to respond to emergencies. During times of emergency, uh, there are augmented and, and new uh, programs under those existing structures. So at HHS ASPR, there are four cooperative agreements that are available 
for COVID-19 specifically. One that goes to the existing 62 um, states, territories, and directly funded cities uh, to, to help to enhance um, some staffing costs, equipment costs, and nothing to, to cover direct patient care costs. None of these um, cooperative agreements that I'm talking about can be used to cover direct patient care costs. Um, there is a, an additional one that is going, an additional HHS ASPR cooperative agreement that is being issued or has been issued to hospital associations um, in all 50 states plus DC and Puerto Rico. Um, same concept of funding um, through the hospital associations and directly to hospitals and other healthcare facilities. This provides funding for equipment purchases and um, some, some staff augmentation and a, and a few other items. Um, one, one cooperative agreement that goes to the um, the NETEC, the National Emerging and Special Pathogens Training and Exercise Center, and then a final um, a final one that goes to the ten regional Ebola treatment centers that were established as uh, as hubs for highly infectious disease management. At CDC, there are three cooperative agreements. One is the crisis response cooperative agreement. One is the epidemiology and lab capacity uh, for COVID-19 um, cooperative agreement. And another is a tribal cooperative agreement, all issued to help augment public health emergency preparedness activities. So um, the, the operations of your local or state health department helping to augment um, and cover those operations, epidemiology um, activities, so um, contact tracing, and um, uh, quarantine and isolation costs and staffing costs for epidemiological activities and testing laboratory capacity. Um, so that, that is generally what those CDC efforts uh, will cover. And then there's two other uh, opportunities that we didn't really talk about in the, in the last podcast because we were looking for some clarity and some guidance about what, it, what those were going to look like. The first is just your sort of regular routine reimbursement through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So for facilities who are already enrolled um, as participating providers in Medicare and Medicaid, they can and, and should bill according to their normal procedures for any care uh, given to one of their um, enrolled, um, an enrolled patient for COVID-19 services. So that is, those are completely um, valid and, and reasonable costs that CMS will reimburse. Finally, the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, is administering a brand new program for COVID-19. It's the COVID-19 Uninsured Program. It's funded through all three um, COVID-19-related uh, congressional appropriations, and it is designed to provide um, funding or reimbursement for healthcare providers for uninsured patients diagnosed with COVID-19 um, as a payer of last resort. So if you um, if there's no insurance to bill, there's no Medicare, Medicaid to bill, a healthcare provider can apply for this program for reimbursement of treating a COVID-19 patient. That's a, a definite uh, change from last time, and, and I'm certain that most of the medical uh, facilities are, are will welcome that because Obviously, um, the ability to pay for the service is critical, not only to providing it, but also for those facilities to be able to continue to operate. Uh, in with regards to the reimbursement process, you know there are certain costs that 
under the the multiple entities that are able to provide it from the federal government in terms of dollar reimbursement for for certain costs some of those can actually be covered by more than one federal program uh is it possible for eligible entities like you know state and locals or hospitals or others to have costs covered by more than one of the federal programs absolutely and in fact it's it's pretty common to have emergency activities covered by more than one entity so as long as it is an eligible expense, you are an eligible applicant for whichever program you're looking at, and the costs are not being duplicated, you can have that, you can have multiple programs cover similar or same eligible expenses. So if something costs uh, $100,000 and it is an eligible expense, and one entity can provide costs either in advance or reimbursement for say $50,000. You could still seek reimbursement for the remaining 50K from another source. You could also say in the case of <clears throat> say an alternate care site, which is an area that I, I've been focusing a lot of my time on. Um, an alternate care site uh, is, a, is a structure of opportunity established to provide care outside of a hospital. So you could have multiple costs and multiple uh, covered expenses within that one structure or within that one project. And a, a different program is covering a cost for something different. So say one program covers the cost of beds, equipment, and PPE. Another program covers the cost of some staffing, um, uh, overhead staffing, you know, indirect staffing. Um, and another program perhaps covers the cost for uh, the actual structure, the actual facility itself. That is all eligible, that is all covered, that is all allowable. And then in the end, once you're operational, if it is, uh, say, turned over and managed by a healthcare facility, you could then bill, um, you could bill CMS for those Medicare patients and you could bill the COVID-19 uninsured program for the non-insured patients. So it's, it's really a matter of talking with your state and local representatives and talking for the state and local reps, talking with your um, FEMA and your HHS regional emergency coordinators and regional administrators to figure out in advance um, what your best bet is and what your best options are. And um, I know Marty and, and Marty's going to be talking about this. He always talks about this. You need to be able to accurately account for your costs and eligible expenses and know exactly which program is covering which dollar. It's why meticulous accounting and record keeping is so important for reimbursement right from the start. Uh, that's a great point. And we're actually, when we when we do talk about the FEMA funding a little bit later in the podcast, I definitely want to bring you back in because there's an interesting dynamic that gets played out in terms of federal dollars being used for reimbursement for certain protective equipment. Um, yep. And that's a lot of state and local governments want, need to know. We'll, we, we'll tease that for now. We'll yep. come back to that one yep. in a moment. Now, as we obviously we're in the midst of response and in some cases recovery, but still response in large measure. Um, as we look to the future, uh, preparedness actions, future wave of, of COVID, whether it is this fall, the winter, uh, is there funding still available now for preparedness actions to get ahead of that challenge moving forward? Absolutely. So the funding that was issued from HHS um, it, the cooperative agreement funding is absolutely still available. It's, it's, it was pushed out um, and it is still intended for use for uh, either, depending on how you want to look at it, either preparedness or mitigation actions uh, for, for current activities and in preparation for a, a, a next wave or a new peak. So that is all still available. 
um, CMS and HRSA funding, that the COVID uninsured funding, those are reimbursements for actual patient care. So while that funding is still available, it is not um, money that's available to you before you treat a patient. You would need to treat that patient, um, document your cost, and then reimburse like you would to any insurance company. So um, much of the work that we're doing now, like pre-purchasing PPE, building alternate care capacity, um, those are all still uh, available options. And um, we're definitely, uh, jurisdictions are being encouraged to do that and keep those keep those um, preparedness and mitigation actions in place or keeping keep them warm so that all the work that we do now can be used later. So things like the, the Javits Center or, or other alternate care sites that have been established, um, we're not looking to turn those off and, and shut them down, just keep them warm so that they can be used in the future. That's, uh, that's good to know, Megan. Thank you. We'll be, we'll be back to you here in a moment. I'd like to bring in Kelly Price for uh, a few minutes here. Um, we mentioned in an earlier podcast that Normally, uh, folks don't necessarily immediately think of housing and urban development as uh, a funding source for disasters. But for, quite frankly, a couple of decades now, um, HUD through the Community Development Block Grant programs have provided resources to state and local governments uh, through the CBDG program uh, for disaster relief. Um, they've recently received a significant amount of money over the last couple of years for future mitigation efforts. Uh, nationwide, and most recently uh, have received additional dollars through the CARES Act for uh, COVID-19 uh, activities. As we look at the HUD programs, uh, what are those uh, resources that are available for from HUD for COVID-19, and who's eligible for that? Sure, great question. And you're right that HUD, um, while the name may not... <laughs> Um, indicate uh, a disaster recovery and this type of uh, more challenging kind of recovery, HUD has always played a, an important role in that, um, given that they kind of cover the gamut from uh, public housing and assisted housing all the way through all sorts of community development, energy efficiency, and environmental type uh, issues. And so CDBG is often the program that Congress turns to to put funding into recovery efforts, whether that be for natural disasters or in this case, uh, this type of economic disaster. And there's one precedence for this um, back during um, the sort of great recession, as we call it, of the housing market uh, collapse um, called the Neighborhood Stabilization Program. And so, um, and that was also CDBG funding. So there's there's a number of programs that have sort of uh, branched off the tree of community development. And the latest one is the CDBG CV, as they're calling it. Um, so HUD was allocated a total of $12 billion in funding in the CARES Act. Um, and that funding went to different programs, some for housing authorities for relief around um, uh, rents and things like that, some uh, significant amount of money actually to homelessness-related programs and prevention of homelessness uh, through the Emergency Shelter Grant Program, which ICF also does a good deal of work around. And then the other big pot was CDBG-CV, and that was allocated $5 billion total. Um, since our last podcast, we're now at uh, $3 billion of that now being allocated, and it sort of happened in two branches, if you will. That's the term we use in the CBGDR world. But um, that happened um, with $2 billion being um, recorded 
uh, excuse me, um, allocated based on the FY2020 methodology that's typically used for regular CDBG. And HUD got that money and those announcements out fairly quickly. Um, that, that $2 billion was allocated to both states and entitlement jurisdictions. And entitlement jurisdictions are cities and counties of a certain size and that meet certain other criteria that's based um, in the regulations and the, uh, the statute. Um, since we last met, um, $1 billion has uh, additionally been allocated. Um, that funding was announced on May 11th. And the difference there is that um, how that was determined, um, and HUD put out a notice on that, but how that was determined was based less so on the typical CDBG methodology and more so this time based on the impact of COVID in uh, the different states. Um, and uh, Congress laid out a number of those criteria for HUD in the CARES Act, and then HUD uh, you know, had to expand upon those and, and collect the data. And they've published a two-page document um, that's available on the HUD website to explain that methodology. The difference uh, with this funding also is that it went to states and insular areas only. So entitlement jurisdictions, those cities and counties that received some of that $2 billion did not receive um, anything under this $1 billion allocation. Those states could choose to spend it in, you know, in those areas should, should that need arise. So, so far $3 billion. The remaining $2 billion, um, HUD is saying, will be allocated on a rolling basis. They actually have until 2022 to um, obligate that money. Um, and the criteria around allocating that additional $2 billion is, is based more on um, the data that we, we previously discussed that, that is still being collected and, and the impact of this still being determined um, around uh, the instances of COVID and, and um, that sort of thing. So I think we'll see that sort of rollout later um, based on overall impact of COVID in certain hard-hit areas in the country. Um, so there's $3 billion out there to, to utilize at this point in time. Uh, it's certainly uh, a tremendous amount of money and, uh, and, and have a number of, of great uses. So what are some of the things that the CBDG CV grantees and their partners can actually use the funding for? Yeah, that's a great question because um, the one reason that CDBG sort of is this uh, tree that these recovery programs end up sort of being funded through in terms of the the basis of, of the statute and the regulation is because it does have a lot of flexibility. It does go to states and entitlement jurisdictions, so it covers the gamut of rural areas and cities. Um, and it also has in the statute um, over 20 some eligible activities, and those are the there's sort of broad buckets of things that um, grantees can use the funding for in their communities. And it ranges from affordable housing, uh, either rehab and, and, and different projects like that, revitalization projects, economic development, infrastructure, and services, and everything in between. Those are just some of the broad groupings. Um, because of the nature of COVID and, and this, you know, as we pointed out earlier, this sort of challenging ongoing up and down of what will be this recovery. Um, from what we understand in talking to a number of grantees and our clients and, and uh, the associations and some of the HUD folks, there's sort of three main areas where grantees seem to be sort of coalescing around utilizing the CARES Act funding. And these 
makes sense if you think about the impact of this. So one is the services. One of the things that was in the CARES Act that came out automatically was a, a, a elimination of a cap that's normally on the CFG funds that limits how much money grantees can use for public services. Normally that's 15% uh, a cap. That is gone. So they can utilize a, a significant amount of money on different services. And the HUD regulations provide examples of the types of services, but they're not limited to those things. As long as they can show it's a new or a quantifiable increase in a service that wasn't provided before, which we, I think we all would argue <laughs> we're in a new era of something we haven't anticipated or, or dealt with before of this magnitude, it qualifies. It further needs to serve uh, low to moderate income people or low to moderate income areas. And there's different ways that that's determined and there's a lot of guidance on that. So a number of services, we've heard everything from you know, supplementing food banks and Meals on Wheels programs because of the, the need for uh, food for folks who are unemployed or struggling with um, underemployment. Um, medical services and things like that are, are being funded. Um, and even some, you know, some uh, jo job retraining and, and, and um, other employment and counseling services to help folks um, who are struggling with um, maybe being evicted or, or mortgage foreclosure. So that's a common area. And Marco, related to that, one of the really key areas that grantees are honing in on is that CVG can be used in limited circumstances for emergency assistance to households, low and moderate income households, to help them for up to three months with their rent payments or mortgage payments or utility payments so that they do not lose their home and, and are not living in a, in a home without those, those key utilities. Again, right now, that's limited to three months maximum, but a, a number of grantees and associations are lobbying for, uh, and I use the term lobbying broadly, but are advocating for a change to that in the um, uh, upcoming uh, guidance from HUD that, that they're hoping for uh, that to be extended to six to 12 months because this thing is dragging on longer than any of us thought. So uh, that rental assistance is a particular area of importance. Many, many grantees are trying to find a way to partner with housing authorities or local nonprofits to get that money out to households who desperately need it. And then the third most common area we're hearing about and helping some clients with is around um, business assistance. So while there was the Paycheck Protection Program, there's SBA loans um, and some other programs in some places, it just seems to not still be enough. And there's a number of very small businesses and, and others who, who struggled to try to participate in those other programs. And maybe there wasn't you know, sufficient funding or time for them to get in on that. So CBG sort of oftentimes fills the hole. And we see this in the Disaster Recovery Program as well. Um, so a number of uh, grantees, a couple of states literally that we're, we're working with right now are putting together small business loan programs or small business grant programs, um, and even some to micro businesses, which are defined in the regulations as very small businesses owned by low income persons. And so they're trying to stand up those programs fairly quickly, figure out the underwriting and the qualifications around those programs. But um, hoping that will help to, you know, with restaurants and, and other service related industries and other small businesses that may not have been able to 
um, access the other federal funding that's been available so far. Well, so there's 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 another you know there's many other activities as well, but those are sort of the the key ones that seem to hit directly at the most needed areas that we're seeing right now. Well, it also seems to me, Gully, that these the programs that we've been talking about here that you've mentioned are very, in many ways, they're somewhat unique to to CBDG CV, but they actually cover aspects of disaster relief which either folks have a preconception of because of the way it's handled in natural disasters, such as in, you know, if it was a hurricane, a tornado, and you needed mm -hmm. rental assistance, it was about getting you a place to stay because you couldn't stay and that and, and that rent being covered um, or the, that assistance being covered. But in this case, you haven't lost your home necessarily. You just don't have the income in order to necessarily pay the rent or pay the mortgage. And this is helping That's to right. provide some relief for that, which is um, yeah. a kind of a twist on the whole thing, but incredibly <laughs> more valuable in a lot of ways. Right. And there's an economic domino effect of that, too. If they can't pay the rent, that affects the small landlords and even the larger real estate companies. If, if, if the mortgage crisis hits us again, that, that causes all sorts of ripple effects in the, in the national economy. Um, and then, um, you know, the, the utilities, we're even hearing from some states that their utility companies, primarily in rural areas, are really struggling um, because they just don't have the cash flow that some of the larger, you know, multi-state utilities have to go without businesses and households paying their bills. Um, and so they're struggling to try to make CBG sort of work with that. Um, and uh, also health services and how they can, you know, intertwine into the health services world, which is something that CBG grantees um, aren't as familiar with perhaps and, and, and uh, would have to forge new partnerships, but the funding can be used to support some of those health services, testing, outreach, and that sort of thing, particularly to low-income and minority communities. That's great to know. Uh, Kelly, we'll bring you back here in just a few minutes as we sure. as we think about the future. But I want to do is bring Marty Altman in. Um, obviously, the FEMA Public Assistance Program is is well known to many. It's certainly um, many state and local governments are well aware of the provision of recovery dollars that are available to those governments for a number of measures. And in under COVID. Uh, every state is eligible for emergency protective measures, um, and in many cases, uh, some additional uh, program benefits from the public assistance program. Uh, because of COVID-19, and there are many multiple funding sources, which um, most communities uh, deal with on a lesser scale, but now are, are uh, having to understand multiple programs and how they intersect, how can, in working with our clients, you've seen them ask questions about how they maximize their recovery um, while avoiding a duplication of benefits. What, how do they go about doing that? And what are, they, what are they asking you to help them with? And how are they addressing that challenge of these, uh, maximizing these resources? Well, that, that's a good question, Marco. And it's just, uh, it's Megan and Kelly was speaking on, on the programs that they, they have oversight on and how the complexity of the different funding sources are together. One of the biggest questions is we're getting is how do I keep track of all this? How can I maximize every funding source that is made available? Megan spoke of it, uh, a little bit of it, and, and when she was speaking about, you know, certain programs will pay for 
certain things. So what, what they're asking us is what kind of a tracking mechanisms do you have in place or how can you guide us in order to make sure with all these funding buckets that one, that we're taking the maximum on each funding sources and it's not coming into the duplication of benefits, okay? Because that's the key thing. And FEMA is the last resort. They've always been the last resort. So what we're doing is looking at a, at a governmental entity and taking every funding sources that's made available to them. Not everybody has the same funding sources, but most of them are pretty close into the same funding sources. And we're taking it and we're explaining it to them. You've got to understand what is covered by each and every one of those funding sources. Then, as Megan even also mentioned previously, was you know, the key thing is you've got to document everything and be able to support whatever you're going to ask for reimbursement for. Without that documentation, you're not even going to be able to maximize your funding sources or know what bucket it goes into. So what we're doing, we're working with, with our clients and, and, and applicants and sub-applicants and just saying, Here, here's what you have. What, what have you expended? And, and we'll just start putting it into buckets and see where you can maximize, say, um, this funding source is going to be able to take $100,000. And just as Megan says, it may cost you $200,000. Where can the rest of it go? And just, I, I call it going backwards down to the final funding source, which is FEMA. And so they're looking for that expertise to understand because they're afraid. And they're afraid of one is they're going to end up having a duplication and some one of these agencies are going to come back and say, we want our money back because that's always a big thing. Or if they get audited, you know, and they find out things are crossing over each and every funding sources. So it's a critical thing. And uh, it, it, it really is going to play a, even a harder time. I tell people now with we're in the hurricane season, as you mentioned, and we had two named storms already. And then we've had several uh, tornado incidents and flooding incidents that this is coming into play. So not only do you have to worry about what funding sources for the COVID-19 response has been, but now you've got to be able to keep it segregated from the, the new event that you may be faced with because you can't overlap those costs either. So it, it, it's a critical thing. That's one key question they're asking us and how to track this, this, uh, humongous uh, funding resources that's out there. Well, when the funding's available, you know, especially when we look at activities that CDC and HHS are recommending with regards to, you know, government facilities, um, never mind the security of businesses and all the rest of it, but really understanding how certain activities have to happen um, to uh, comply with guidance from the CDC over retrofitting facilities. Um, there are a number of options that state and local governments can take and what funding is available for helping meet those federal guidelines from CDC for retrofitting uh, facilities so that, quite frankly, government workers can get back into the workplace. Well, currently FEMA has not come out with uh, their guidance uh, on how they're going to handle that. So everybody's still waiting and that's a big question. Because even this morning and several phone calls says, has FEMA come out and say how and what is eligible for retrofitting our facilities to bring our folks back into work? You know, we're talking about eligible subrecipients and, and 
and even even some recipients itself, you know, they're they're exposed to the same thing. You know, I look at the state of Louisiana and they're starting to bring their people back and they're having issues already. They got to look at different alternatives, how they can keep workflow moving as well as, you know, working off site remotely and all that is still going on. But everybody's waiting on saying who's going to help us to fund retrofitting our facilities because it is a cost that is strictly related to this incident and this disaster. So we're still waiting on answers. And just as we mentioned many a times, this is a very complex disaster. It's unprecedented and we're, it's changing every day, you know, to what's going to be coming out, who's going to pay for what. I know everything in, in FEMA's world is we have to adhere to what HHS says and CDC says. They, they are the primary uh, agency to manage a pandemic. And FEMA's taking their lead off of them and everything reverts back to them. So again, back to the multiple funding sources, determining what CDC will pay for, what HHS will pay for, and then what FEMA will pay for. And everybody's just waiting for the FEMA piece right now. Well, there, has there been any guidance from FEMA on reimbursement for putting up temporary facilities? No, uh, they they have uh, temporary facilities. I'm sorry. Let me let me rephrase that. Yes, they've come out back with non uh, congregate sheltering uh, facilities that they will pay for and reimburse for. Uh, and if they have to put a temporary facility up in making sure there's no duplication of benefits, FEMA will reimburse for temporary facilities to put up testing facilities and, and treatment facilities, depending on what isn't being reimbursed from the other agencies. Again, FEMA's last resort. We'd like to also bring Megan into the discussion on uh, at this point again, too. Uh, I think from a medical care cost standpoint, um, there are some costs that FEMA will pay for uh, that, uh, you know, the alternate care sites, uh, you know, equipping them, staffing them, et cetera, and the associated costs. But there's some interesting things where both FEMA public assistance will cover certain costs uh, to manage response and, and through a joint agreement with HHS. But PPE was, an, you know, personal protective equipment uh, purchased by the state and locals in order to support their efforts. There's actually uh, a piece, you know, FEMA will pay for it. HHS will pay for it. Uh, but there are, there, are, there are nuances to this. And if you could kind of share how the, the two work together and as state and locals think about how they want to utilize the funding from either source, um, how do they handle that in this particular case for PPE? Right. So, um, so P I'll answer that question first, and then I, I think I'll come back and, and talk a little bit about um, the conversation you were just having with Marty. But so with regard to PPE, PPE can be purchased using uh, funding given to um, states and other recipients from HHS and from CDC. All of those cooperative agreements um, do, do have PPE purchasing as an allowable expense. So you can choose to use your cooperative agreement funding uh, to purchase PPE. You can also submit a, an unmet need request or a request for assistance from the state to the federal government uh, to request PPE purchase and replenishment through sort of that traditional unmet needs request process. And um, there is an agreement between HHS and 
uh, FEMA to purchase that equipment and provide it to the states, you know, if, if that mission assignment is accepted at 100% cost share, so at no cost to the states. So those, those are, there are a number of options. Again, sort of the same advice I gave before, when you're looking at making those kinds of purchases or you have that kind of need, your best first approach is to talk to your FEMA regional administrator or, and your HHS regional emergency coordinator, sort of look at your budget, look at your options and figure out what is you know, most and easiest available for you. And then going back to what you guys were just talking about a second ago, um, in terms of uh, the, the sort of structures of opportunity in the temporary facilities, um, FEMA, FEMA will pay for some of the construction and, and build out of a new site, just like some of the cooperative agreements will cover some of those costs. Um, FEMA will also pay for emergency medical care. So they will, they will cover the costs of initial assessment, diagnosis, treatment, basically all of the kind of care that you would receive in an emergency department up until the point where a patient is determined to be admitted to a hospital or discharged. And that's only if they are the payer of last resort. So a healthcare provider needs to bill insurance first, they need to bill Medicare and Medicaid first, um, and they should tap into the COVID-19 uninsured program first. Um, and if not, then they can look into FEMA for providing that, that sort of limited cost for medical care. Uh, that's a great point. And I also want to reemphasize one of the other points I think you made that is very interesting because if the PPE is purchased through the federal government, um, in other words, the federal government is the purchaser, the federal government is providing it, that 100% cost share comes into play. Um, I would suspect, however, that, you know, and, and please both of you correct me if I'm wrong, that should the state or local governments make those purchases on their own, um, it would be subject to the normal cost share for that program. If they purchased it um, using FEMA PA funding as opposed to submitting it as a direct request, um, possibly, but, but this special, this sort of special arrangement um, has been made so that there, there is no, there, there would be no cost to the states if you go through FEMA as an unmet need. So in terms of a, a reimbursement, Marty, I would defer to you on that, but I, I don't think that's encouraged because I think that they, if FEMA is going to be involved in it, they want it to be a, a federal purchase. You're, Megan, you're 100% you're correct. You know, it, again, just mentioned earlier, FEMA is the last resort, uh, but if the problem you have in the earlier days is the equipment that was purchased in the early stages of this pandemic, uh, there is costs associated with that, and they would be subject to the federal cost share, which is right now, currently, it's uh, 75.25 for what they have. But, you know, states are going to encourage the subrecipients to, to follow through the mission assignment uh, for, for those needs and through the unmet needs that the communities need. Uh, so, uh, to answer your question, yeah, there would be a cost share when anything was submitted. It's not that if you submit something, and this is what the subrecipients need to understand, you may have purchased this stuff and everything, and you go to send it in for a reimbursement. It will get reimbursed, but that cost share will be seventy-five twenty-five. But it's it's highly advisable to go through the state to get get the PPE equipment. Uh, it's a great point, and, and I think it's important that um, 
our state and local uh, listeners understand the differences and the nuances of that, because it certainly can make a significant dif difference when um, buying, certainly in the case of PPE, and when you're buying in such volume uh, because of the need, uh, that difference between 100% and 75-25 uh, could essentially mean that 25% of state dollars or other resource dollars that um, could be applied elsewhere uh, as opposed to, uh, to, to pay the cost share on those particular activities. And certainly it also, in many respects, um, allows for uh, at least some semblance of order in the process in terms of how supplies are purchased nationally, uh, given the fact that the marketplace is responding to inputs from all over the place, people you know, trying to purchase from multiple sources. Uh, and certainly there's some buying power that's available through, um, through federal direct mission assignment that may not be available to some state localities on their own. As we look to the future, and I'm bring all three of you into this equation, um, Marty, what are some of the things that from uh, your perspective on the emergency management side, the FEMA side, that we should be thinking about, our state and local clients really should be thinking about in terms of future continuity of operations, um, expertise they need to start really thinking about and putting in place now um, as we move through the, the, the ongoing summer events and into the fall. I think there's uh, several things they need to look at. Uh, they, one, they got to look at their uh, continuity of operations plans and making sure they are up to date to be able to help manage them through two incidents running at one time uh, with the pandemic and with whatever nature brings us in, in the upcoming season here. But one of the things they really need to start looking at because of the pandemic is what's their sheltering resources they have within their own communities, you know, because there is, could be, you know, just as Megan said earlier on that, um, there's still places that haven't had a peak yet. We don't know where that's going to be yet as well, because, you know, as we've seen over the holiday weekend, the, the mass of people in, in certain locations. So if you're along, say, the coastlines and everything else with the beaches and everything else, and all of a sudden you start getting a huge increase again, an uptick in, in this uh, pandemic. What is, what is where are you going to put the people in a, during the next event? What, what's uh, isolation that you have uh, for people? You know, temporary lodging, uh, high risk population sheltering, you know, the elderly and the healthcare workers. And, and also, we can't forget about the pets. You know, a lot of people have pets today. You got to have sheltering for that. So they really need to look at their plan, their response plan, their recovery plans and say, what do we need? What did we learn from the pandemic that we need to be prepared for with another event coming in our communities? Uh, they can get that expertise help. There's people out there that's uh, trained and, and understands how to make sure continuity of operation plans are put together which there is funding for that, you know, and it's different FEMA programs. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the mitigation dollars. It's going to be coming out, you know, taking advantage of that through that whole process as well to improve and prepare, or I call it hardening the infrastructure, so to speak, to prevent things from happening. Well, that certainly is uh, fodder for a future uh, podcast. And we've talked about doing one on mitigation activities that both involve 
FEMA mitigation funding through um, that is a spinoff of the public assistance program. Obviously, FEMA started the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program, BRIC, which is replacing the pre-disaster mitigation program. And that application period uh, for state and locals is expected to begin in the fall of this year. Uh, and then, of course, there is a significant amount of uh, prior year funding uh, available um, through the uh, through HUD programs and CBDG mitigation, uh, which in many cases states are just beginning to put in place uh, their plans for how they're going to utilize those funds uh, and how that program will move forward and dovetail into some of these others. So, Kelly, you know, since I brought HUD up. Uh, one of the things that I think as we look forward around CBDG CV and how HUD will use the, the most recent addition of funding, uh, obviously there's some, some aspects of that that have yet to be determined. Where do you see some of the challenges that HUD will be looking at in terms of future use of those dollars moving forward? Sure. Yeah, that's that's why some of the grantees haven't, you know, totally rolled out programs. It's sort of similar to what we were saying about the FEMA, you know, sort of waiting on this this guidance. Um, not that they're not working very, very hard on it, but it's complicated. So there are some challenges, um, particularly for states. Um, states, the way the program is written, have to provide the funding only in non-entitlement areas. Um, so they can't fund the bigger cities and counties, which is where um, in a lot of places that the concentration of cases has been. Um, and um, they have to fund it through a unit of local government. And so um, that's the, uh, one layer down. But those units of local governments in rural areas often don't have the, you know, the sort of infrastructure, the capacity, you know, to just start up a new you know, eviction prevention program or a business grant program. So they're having to really think through how to get the money down to where it needs to go, knowing though that there's these layers um, that they have to adhere to, at least for now. Again, um, a lot of the advocacy groups are pushing HUD to um, waive the requirement that they have to go through local governments. And they have waived that under disaster recovery funding before. So there's a precedent for that. Um, and again, one of the other challenges that I just mentioned in there that is true probably on the health side and, and everything else, which is this is sort of unprecedented. And so finding partners that, again, have the capacity and are ready to stand up a program and get the funding out quickly, but do so in compliance with all of the rules and requirements, um, particularly the sort of administrative and financial and reporting requirements, is 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 tough. Um, it can be done, but again, in, in rural areas or um, cities that have been particularly hard hit, those systems are pretty taxed right now. So um, they're having to think through that. And then um, another area that was mentioned earlier is duplication of benefits. Um, while disaster recovery CDBGDR grantees are used to dealing with um, duplication of benefits albeit some of them still struggle with it, <laughs> doing it properly. But um, they, um, these grantees who are getting CWG-CV are not the same and or have never had CWG-DR funding. So this twist of duplication of benefits is a new thing. And um, 
it it is it's it hopefully is not super complicated for them given the type of activities that they fund but yet it's still an exercise they have to go through and have that documentation in place particularly for those businesses as i mentioned earlier that they might assist to ensure that they if they did in fact get sba assistance or paycheck protection or something like that that that's factored into their calculations as to how much cdbg cv can pay for it's sort of a last resort funding as well. So um, those are some of the challenges. Um, again, I think we're all hopeful that um, HUD is working very hard to try to minimize those as much as possible um, and that some of those barriers were, will sort of uh, fall away, but um, always a challenge. <laughs> Absolutely. Megan, uh, future perspectives from uh, the healthcare side of this equation. Sure. I think, so I think obviously continuing to prepare um, for future waves of, of pandemic, because as history and science tells us, second waves of pandemics have always been worse than the first. So everybody is keeping their eye on that sort of horizon. Um, and then I think, I think it really goes for, you know, the sort of more short term is, is a concern over concurrent disasters over the summer. So, so much to what Marty talked about. Sheltering is a huge concern, um, trying to get jurisdictions that are most likely to be hit by shelter requiring disasters. So um, earthquakes, hurricanes, wildfires, floods, tornadoes, those sort of events to get them prepared to do non-congregate sheltering um, as best they can. And if you have to do congregate sheltering to attempt to do it in as um, reasonable a way as possible to reduce the potential for infectious disease outbreaks. Um, running concurrent operations while trying to maintain social distance. So just because we are opening up and uh, you know coming back into the office doesn't mean that we're all gonna stay there. So it is the, pos the possibility certainly exists that you could have to um, respond to a disaster while your community is under stay-at-home orders again. Um, and obviously, emergency management and first responder personnel are essential, are essential personnel, but some, um, some adherence to social distancing has to be maintained if you do not want to get your entire workforce sick. So um, you do need to think through that sort of the, the sort of physical engineering of your emergency ops centers, of your disaster field offices, and, uh, and of your emergency response structure for, say, a hurricane response that keeps in mind that there is a highly infectious, um, you know, droplet spread infectious disease occurring at the same time. So you have to plan for that. I also think that there's going to be some confusion, some confusion in terms of federal funding with concurrent disasters. And I, I do look forward to some guidance coming out in the summer that addresses this. this. Is the non-congregate shelter that you are forced to establish in your community because of a hurricane, is that covered by COVID-19 funding because you had to do a non-congregate shelter because of the infectious disease? Or is that covered by hurricane funding because you had to do a shelter in the first place because of the hurricane? I don't think that's clear. And I don't think any of us have a good answer for that right now. And so it's something that jurisdictions need to think about. Um, certainly, you know, on the jurisdictional side, just track your costs and, you know, that, that gets figured out. But, but it is something to think about. Um, and then 
uh, I think just just trying to prepare for and, and be in position to do vaccinations. When we do get a vaccine, it isn't good enough to just have the vaccine. Um, a, a countrywide vaccination campaign is a huge undertaking. So your, um, if we have emergency managers on the phone, your, your public health uh, counterparts are already starting to think through what this will look like. Um, it'll, it'll look like some sort of a combination of maybe what the community-based testing looked like, combination of how we did um, vaccinations during H1N1, during a normal flu season. It's going to be a combination of efforts, but that is something that is um, definitely on everyone's mind because it's going to be a huge planning undertaking. It can't, it can't, can't plan for it the day before you receive vaccine. You have to start planning for it now, even if it's um, six months, 12 months, 18 months, or two years away. I think those are great points. And I think the bottom line for any of our state and local partners um, uh, is thinking in terms of proactive planning, proactive activities, uh, making sure that they are fully documenting all costs and not necessarily waiting for federal guidance that may on certain aspects of it that may take some time. Uh, do the right things for your community, do the right planning in advance. Make sure that you document it all, and ultimately, um, as the guidance is developed on some of these longer-term issues, um, it'll be far easier at that point to understand which programs can pay for what at what level, uh, and in order to avoid duplication of benefits, but more importantly, to maximize the resources that have been and are continuing to be made available through federal funding programs. I'd like to thank all of you for joining. I know that we have raised a number of topics and subjects with regards to the funding. Duplication of benefits is a huge challenge. Uh, ICF is preparing now a webinar uh, on duplication of benefits uh, to try to begin to help address and understand those issues a little more in depth. Uh, look for announcements about that webinar in the future. Uh, we'll also be looking at uh, posting on the ICF website uh, in the not too distant future, as soon as this podcast loads, uh, a funding matrix, which is looking at the federal funding programs that are available for COVID-19 and the things that they cover uh, and showing where some of them are uh, complementary uh, in terms of items that they cover. Uh, and so that it will give our state and local clients and friends an opportunity to kind of at least have an initial introduction to how those programs interact and overlap. Uh, and certainly there is a tremendous amount of detail that uh, can go behind that. And that will also be made available on the ICF website, icf.com slash insights is where this podcast can be found and the materials and the links to the federal agencies, to Kelly, to Megan, to Marty, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, appreciate your services to the community and to the nation. And ICF looks forward in the future uh, to doing more podcasts and more educational programming to help assist our state, local, and federal clients do the best they can for their communities. Thank you.